Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Okay, so we are wrapping up 1 Peter today. Six weeks, five chapters, we powered through. Um, wasn't our original intent, but it's been a, a joy and challenge to, to work through these words of Peter. And so uh, to wrap us up, as we conclude, uh, again, overall, the theme has been to remember. Remember our place in Jesus. Remember our living hope in him. Remember our identity, our conduct in light of that new identity, and the new outlook on life that we have, our perspective because of this living hope. And now... Uh, Oh, I actually dropped it earlier. Uh, Today is remember our place or position in Jesus. Uh, In three different areas specifically in our life. Uh, One is leaders, two as followers, and and three ultimately as humans. Uh, These are both take place amongst the body, but then as well amongst the world. So let's look at the first point. We're going to walk through this passage a little bit uh, all the way through. So let's start in verse 1. First point, remember our place as leaders. And for those of you who are like, I'm not a leader, um, stay tuned. We'll we'll talk. And I do think there are applications for us here. So Peter writes, Now as an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you. Now, so elders, elders in this term... um, we don't typically have that term here at Life, LifeBridge. It seems like the closest term we have here is those on the leadership team. Uh, but a, a lot of church traditions will use the term elder or bishop, things of that sort. But those seem to be synonymous. And so um, these are the overseers of the local church is what they're referring to. They're not just speaking age-wise, although age typically comes with being uh, an elder or an overseer. Um, Although Timothy being an example in the New Testament, an exception to the rule that those who are younger, though rich in faith, older in faith, can still be seen as and accepted as an elder. Um, so, and, and, and likewise, the opposite is also true. Not everyone who is elderly is wise. Um, so, but it's just a general rule from the Proverbs. And so... That's typically an elder, those older in the faith within the community. These are people of integrity. They're called to sacrificially lead uh, through serving their local church and their community. They're called to be above reproach, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 3. That means even outside these four walls, or many walls, this is kind of angled. Um, But you get what I'm saying. Outside this building, within their neighborhoods, within their community, they are to be in good standing. In particular, they're called to live this way in times of crisis, and we see that in the context of the letter, right? The the hearers of Peter are in crisis. They are going through a difficult time, and they're called especially to be of utmost integrity in the most trying of times, leading the way when it's easy for us all to uh, go off the path. Uh, Those of us who have been on leadership team or are on leadership team, uh, the last two years have been... The big test of that, right? An example of staying the course, 
as easy as, as it is to get off the course, to lead in difficult times. What's been our experience with, with leaders in our culture? I, you know, I was born in 91, so within my lifetime, uh, I know I've, I've seen at least both sides of the political aisle uh, really willing to compromise their character values, their character standards for the sake of siding with a candidate that better affirms their political worldview, their political ide ideology. Essentially, it's if you get the job done, it's okay whatever you say or however you live. This is contrary to the way of Jesus. This is not in congruence with the way of Jesus. If I were to get the job done here on, as a pastor, the quote-unquote job of my life, I'm not loving my family well. I don't love my neighbors well. I'm disqualified. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a leader. But for some reason in culture, more and more we continue to bend that. We continue to lower our standards, in, in particular, particularly in the political sector. This is not how it is for the church in particular, but I would argue uh, even beyond that. While most of us are not elders or on the leadership team at this point, we all likely have at least one person that God has placed under your care that's looking up to you, that is looking to you. Uh, realistically, I mean, we're all being looked at, right? And in today's social media culture, Man, if you've got quote-unquote followers, you are leading. That's why, they call it, uh, that's why they call it influencer culture. Everything you post is being viewed. Everything you say or don't say is being uh, constantly scrolled through by other people. So all those people, all those followers that we desire, do we really desire it if we uh, to live up to the calling, the standard to live as leaders to those followers? But you may be... An employee, uh, you may be a, a boss, a ship supervisor, you may be a parent, you may be an organizational leader, you, you just may be a neighbor uh, to someone who is younger than you, that looks up to you, um, an older sibling, whatever it may be. We all likely have someone looking to us somewhere to lead. And, and parents of all that, I mean, this starts instilling this to kids as young as you can, especially when they have younger siblings or younger cousins or friends. How, how can they pe be people of character, of integrity? And so even though this is in particular writing to church leaders, I do want us to try and take the principles and uh, we'll, we'll kind of cover, apply them to both. But if you look at verse 1, how does Peter, I mean, do you see how Peter appeals to the elders among them? His demeanor. It's not, I'm Peter. I'm the guy that Jesus said he's going to build his entire church on. I'm the apostle of apostles. I'm the, the, the true shepherd, the chief shepherd Jesus told me to be the next shepherd, feed my sheep. No, he's not saying that. He levels the playing field. He says, I'm an elder too with you. Like, he, doesn't, he, he has every right to, to lord over his position, his authority, that Jesus himself instilled this authority to him, but no, he doesn't say that. He appeals to them in humility. And he keeps going in verse 2. He says, To tend to the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. To so tend to the flock, take care of them. 
we might be a little more accustomed to this than, than uh, me, who didn't really have a lot of animals aside from a dog growing up. Um, and still do. But it seems like a lot more of us may be more familiar with and can understand the agricultural uh, illustrations here, perhaps better than I can. I, Howard Marshall, we've been using his, one of his commentary on First Peter a lot. He asks, what does this picture convey? As developed in the various biblical passages, it brings out the desperate need of sheep for a shepherd. To keep them from wandering away in their stupidity, to protect them from dangers from wild animals and thieves, to feed them, to find them, even at personal risk when they are lost, to prevent one animal from taking advantage of others, to maintain unity within the flock, and to exercise individual care. Many of these applications were made exclusively with reference to Jesus, but they apply by extension also to those who are his under-shepherds in the church. And I would argue this applies across the board for all leaders, these principles. Yes, for those of us on the leadership team in particular, or those who may come on and off the team at some point in their life, um, but man, as, again, as parents, as overseers, as organi organizational leaders, as older siblings, we are to do these things. We are to shepherd in this way. How did our chief shepherd, Jesus, shepherd us? He was willing to lay down a lot, right, to come and look after us. Sometimes when we were so stubborn-headed, and, and, and just set on going the wrong way, of running away, and he came after us, right? Parents, in particular of little ones, right? Uh, you think of when they do, are on their way running, and this little one's about starting to walk, and when she runs into danger now, man, sometimes you pick her up, and she freaks out because she's set on what she wants. Little does she understand that what she wants is harmful to her. And in, in a weird way, I have to make her cry to protect her. Now, that's a little kid. I have to take her from the thing that she thinks she wants in that moment. But that can translate to every stage and phase of life, to every season of life. All of us have people like that. I have people like that over me as well that, will, that I invite and allow to speak into my life like that, even when I hate it, when I want to resist it. But that is how Jesus loves us. And that's how we are to love those who we are called to care for. But it's, it's tender. Jesus is not... That's an extreme case, right? There's some gentle teaching. We're like, Rowan, no, don't do that. Rowan, let's leave that clothes. Rowan, let's leave... Okay. Okay, let's pick you up. Okay, let's bring you back. Okay, let's, let's put the gate up now. And so, usually isn't right away tears, unless it's a bad day. Um, but no, there's usually a gentle process, but sometimes it gets to the point where, man, have you felt this with God? That sometimes God's taken you out of something that you just were like, you probably knew looking back, I shouldn't have been in that. I shouldn't have been doing that. I shouldn't have been a part of that. I shouldn't have been in that relationship. It wasn't the right season. I shouldn't have been in that thing or a part of that position. But we didn't listen. We didn't listen to the Spirit. Uh, we, chose, we didn't take advice. We chose to do it on our own, go about it on our own, figure it out on our own, 
I've had plenty of these experiences in my teenage years and young 20s, uh, and probably will continue, but where God has sovereignly had to shake things up in my life, um, and I was not happy when those things ended. That is how our Lord shepherded us, cared for us as a flock. Shepherd, um, Scott McKnight, another New Testament scholar, he said, elders are to lead and congregations are to follow their lead. The leadership team is to lead and the congregation is to follow their lead. This does imply that the leadership team needs to be of integrity, worthy of following. As Paul, as the Apostle Paul said, you know, follow me as I follow Jesus. This, this directly combats the, um, the poor notion of follow me or do as I say, not as I do, right? Parents, we've, we've sometimes heard that or maybe even said that. Um, and no, that, that's not correct. That's not in line with the way of Jesus. If anything, you can say, yeah, follow me as I do and don't follow Jesus. And when I don't follow Jesus, follow me in my repentance of that. Follow me in my humility, my, my expressing sorrow that, and grief that my actions, my heart state, put Jesus on the cross. And it created barriers between me and God and between me and you at this point. That's, that's the way of repentance and following Jesus in that manner. Uh, Craig Keener, another New Testament scholar, he said, shepherd is a concerned guide rather than a severe ruler. I like those two distinctions. Not a severe ruler, no, a concerned guide watching the flock out in the fields, keeping an eye, letting them wander a little bit, but still know, having an eye, oh, I, I see them, I see them. They're in range, I can go get them if I need to. In the Old Testament, God was referred to as the shepherd. Uh, then in the New Testament, Jesus took on that good shepherd role. And now in the New Age, welcome, <laughs> in the New Age, we are now past that role, those who are elders those who are on the leadership team, to be the shepherds in that season of life. But why? Why are we to care for the flock in this way? Notice who put you in that position. Peter says it was God. Do it as if God would have you do it. If you're a leader, know that God has you in that position. But why else? He says not for selfish gain, not because you have to, but because you get to. Man, if there's a position where you feel like I've got to do this, you're probably not called to that. That's probably not where God wants you. You're just doing it out of compulsion. No, it seems to be that, no, this is something, this is a calling. This is something that is being, uh, the Spirit is, is uh, speaking to you about, that the church is affirming, that your family is supporting and coming alongside and sacrificing and supporting the calling. Our call to lead others through serving is rooted in Jesus himself and the way he led through serving. That's why Peter says, as God would have you do it. It's literally as God did it. In the biography of Jesus, according to Matthew, uh, in chapter 24, starting in verse 45, Jesus says, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility 
of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant has done a good job, there'll be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. But here's the contrary. But what if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't be back for a while? Or kids think mom and dad won't be home for a while? Or mom and dad won't see this? Or your employee, my boss, is out on vacation? Or there's no supervisor that'll rat? And so on. No one else is looking. There's that expression, who you are in private is what you're worth in public. What if the servant is evil and thinks my master won't be back for a while? Know that your master sees and knows everything. And he goes on in 49, and he begins beating the other servants, partying and getting drunk, basically doing whatever they want to do. The master Jesus will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him in a place Assign him a place with hip the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is towards the end, the final days of Jesus. He is giving his final um, allegorical, prophetic, here's what is to come in the age to come for those who are following me and the many who choose to not. Again, this is not do as I say, not as I do ideology. No, it's it's more like the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Jesus, and when I don't, follow even my repentance towards Jesus. Jesus is this chief shepherd, though. Looking at verse 4, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory. Uh, this That never fades away. This term, uh, in those days, uh, when someone would win like an athletic competition, they wouldn't really win a medal, they'd win this crown, but the crown was made often of like plants. And so it would fade. It would crumble. It would eventually fade away. Peter's basically saying, uh, this is a much more uh, eternal ende endeavor. This endeavor will pay off strides uh, more uh, further than the endeavors of life. This is an imperishable crown. Then you keep going in verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. We're going to come back to that part. But he goes back to all of you. And all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. So humility, at this point in human history, in the ancient Near East, this is a brand new virtue. At this point, Aristotle, the guru of virtues, uh, if you look up his virtues from a couple hundred years before, humility is not one of them. This was not thought to be something that we should aspire to as humans. No, pride was a virtue to aspire to. Humility, this is new. Up until this point in human history, it, this was not respectable. This is an example, again, of how the gospel has broken in the kingdom of heaven has come in, in, the, in Jesus. He's inaugurating it. It is changing the reality as we know it, the way humanity and all of reality as we know it works. That's why Jesus said, whoever wants to be first will be last. 
N.T. Wright said, the call to be a humble shepherd is to call is the call to the true strength in which one doesn't have to shout or bully because the work of humble service has forged such a strong bond between shepherd and sheep that the shepherd only needs to walk towards the pasture and the sheep will follow. What does this mean for us? In particular, those who have literally just one person looking up to us. Well, poor leadership looks more like domineering, power, fear-mongering leaders. Their, their followers may comply, but their heart's not in it, right? And sometimes parents, we can resort to that, whether because we're tired or bosses, we, we may resort to that because we're tired, we don't want to deal with it. Um, that can be more fear-mongering. It's not, it's not having someone lead out of heart, out of congruence, of vision. No, it's it's more having them comply, but it may not be joyful. Think about it. Is that how God leads us? No. God led us by coming and doing what we couldn't do, actually joining in, doing it for us. This way of domineering actually has the, the appearance of strength, but it's really rooted in weakness. Uh, for me, I know personally that uh, for both as a husband and a father, usually the times that I've been able to lead both my wife and my kids well, um, or at least passing, um, or really anyone under my care, is when I don't cling to my position or power, but to my poverty spiritually in Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5.3, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. This is a spiritual poverty, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Another word, humble. Have a realistic understanding of themselves. Or they have a realistic understanding that they don't totally grasp the reality of the depravity of their hearts apart from God. So this is less, according to N.T. Wright, this is less of a how can I be a good shepherd? And more of a, how can I best look after these sheep? It's more about how we love them rather than about myself, how I am better. No, it's focus on them, those in your care, those who are looking up to you. How can I serve them? How can I love them as Jesus loved us? Now, this isn't an easy task, and I think that's perhaps why your headers, again, I, I don't like these Bible translation headers, um, but some of them puts verse 7 in a different section. And perhaps, I think that's why, cast all your anxieties on him is in line of this. Because this gives you anxiety, I'm guessing. Mom, dad, boss, leader, whatever it may be, older sibling, grandma, grandpa. That man, that's a lot of pressure. People looking to you. I'm supposed to lead and love them as Jesus loved us? Oh my goodness. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The message says, live carefree before God. He is most careful with you. Let's look at point two. Remember our place as followers. So that's our place as leaders. 
This is our place as followers. Starting verse 5, let's go back a second to 5a, the beginning of verse 5. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. We are to defer to them together. Those of us who are in Christ, we're no longer just our own, right? We are adopted into the local church, the, the body of Christ. And when we join and partake and covenant to be in community, we are submitting to the leaders of that church. Again, this is all um, on the contingency that the leaders are worthy of being leaders. But still, that is, as a follower, we are all followers of Jesus and ultimately, uh, ultimately of Jesus, but then also of our leaders. And even those of you and us, I'm on the leadership team right now, who are on the leadership team, we may not always vote unanimously, but we still submit to the majority rule of the ruling leaders at that time, of the governing leaders. That's how God set it up so far for us in the local church. It's the best that we've been able to understand and adapt that. Proverbs is written all throughout it. There are, I just, I just pulled three of some of my favorite, but all about our place as followers, and not going at it alone, and submitting to our leaders, our parents, our, our grandparents, whatever, our bosses. Here's a couple examples where these principles can, can transfer. Uh, Proverbs 15, 22, plans go wrong for lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. If you think you know the way, if you don't want to listen to your leaders or those who God has given you and over your sight, uh, that's pride. And that pride is, the, is what's right before destruction. That destruction will likely come for you. 12.1, to learn you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. It is stupid to hate correction. Whoa. I don't know if I love discipline. Um, I like the fruit of it. Um, but to love it, and to love that, to, to joyfully submit to that, whom God has placed over my life in this season, it, it is pretty tough. But just as we submit to God vertically, we submit horizontally to one another in the institutions, in particular the local church and the family body that God has uh, given us. Now what does this mean for us, for us who are in Christ, those who are followers? Well, respect for parents and elders, as for God, right? Or grandparents and so on, all these different. Now this is a much bigger web of, okay, who am I under, quote unquote, and all this. But in general, seeing who we are under and knowing that submission, while not a Western ethic or even an American value, no, we like individuality, freedom, don't tell me what to do, ideology, it's not congruent with the way of Jesus. No, we are to submit. That's why in Ephesians 5, just before the submission passage, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is part of our way. If we want our life, we have to give it up. Those who want to be first must be willing to be last. 
That is more in line with the way of Jesus. Now this went against the Greco-Roman culture of no humility from the elders. Elders were allowed to, it was revered again, to boast of their position. And I do think this goes against even our time today. And then you keep going in verse 6. If you apply this same passage, because he speaks to us as followers now too. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. We humble ourselves, even when we have a difficult time with those that God has placed above us, and we may not like what they're saying. Why? Because we humble ourselves in reverence to God. They are people who God has placed in specific seasons. They may not always be in that position over us, but that is a part of our way. And why is that? Because Jesus did that, right? Jesus humbled himself. And we'll get to Philippians 2, but if we are to be like Christ, if we are to follow him, we are to follow him in that humble submissiveness, laying aside our agendas, our desires, our plans for the sake of God. And this may set up our last point, but I do want to ask this. What of poor leaders? What, what if there are poor leaders? What if they lost trust? What if we've been in abusive relationships or a part of that, abusive leadership relationships or familial relationships, or perhaps we have trauma from that, and so we have a difficult time accepting the leaders and familial leaders or, or community leaders, whatever it may be, over us? Um, this is not that simple, and I, I don't want to give a generic um, this is going to fit every situation because I, I do think this is more wisdom, less black and white, more in the gray as to how this works for us, whether we've endured trauma, uh, whether our leaders that God has placed in our life are not worthy of being leaders, but for some reason they are our leaders, and so on. Um, I more want to say, I think that's where verse 7 comes in. And in particular, he's going to get into some suffering. Um, and he will bring back again the suffering because this book, these people have been enduring suffering. But God sees you. God sees you where you're at and where you've been. And he's with you in that. And that's where he says, cast all your anxiety on him. Because he cares for you. He deeply, deeply cares for you. And he does promise so that he may exalt you in due time. That he would redeem you in due time. Not all of us will see that in this lifetime. But perhaps there will be a reckoning for you on this side of death. But in regards to the particular situations, I, th I do think that's less of a pulpit sermon conversation and more of a... Um, let's sit down and have coffee conversation. But know that if that is you in, the, in, a, in a more nuanced relationship, um, I, I gladly welcome and encourage you to uh, reach out. I would love to uh, discuss that further because I, I'm not one to say endure in an abusive relationship. I don't think that's in line with the New Testament uh, ethic of Jesus. 
But uh, to wrap up this one point, remember our, our place as followers in Jesus. Craig Keener wrote, being humble meant repenting or learning one's complete dependence on God. And this may lead into our last point. I, it, it does seem kind of random, but I do think there is a connection if we dig a little deep. I want to make sure I'm doing this right. Okay. Look at verse 8. Remember our place as humans. Um, literally, our position as humans, as being people uh, both a foot in the world and a foot in heaven. We are in the overlap of the ages. And while we are saved, we are still being saved. Uh, while the kingdom of God has come, it is still coming. And so we have a foothold in new life, but we are still aching in old bodily death and the effects of sin on all of creation. And so starting in verse 8, remember our place as human. He says this, discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Hmm. It says, discipline yourselves. Another translation says, to be clear-headed. For the sake of resisting the devil's schemes, discipline yourselves. Be clear-headed. Have a clear perspective. This is where Peter is bringing it all home in the final acts. He's bringing in, overlapping a lot of what we've discussed. Have your eyes fixed in light of that living hope we've had in Jesus, looking to him, looking up rather than, out, uh, rather than around or even within. Look up for a living hope. Have a clear perspective. Have a clear identity. Have a clear idea of who you are now in Christ. He's saying discipline yourselves. Have that clear perspective. Now, how do we actually discipline ourselves? Well, we're going we're gonna to get to that in a, in a sec. We'll come right back to that. But for the sake of resisting the devil's schemes. Now, this is a little... The church can, can, can go pretty far as to... I, I know people in the church who, and I'm from a church world, that is less inclined to point anything on the devil. Um, and then there's a church world that can put everything on the devil, which means I have... All sin is not my fault. Uh, it's the devil made me do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> And so, um, I'm a little somewhere more in between, because definitely think our sin nature is uh, our fault. Sin is our fault. That's why we have to ask for forgiveness. Uh, but yeah, C.S. Lewis pointed out that we either over-dramatize the devil and attribute everything to him, or we over-dramatize him again, but because of its ridiculous caricature, like in horror movies, and make him out to be this little red guy with horns, we refuse to believe or attribute anything to him. And for me, as someone who grew up as like a horror movie fan, that's probably why I lean over here originally, and I'm coming over here too. Now there's, there's a deeper thing, because the caricature that can come from Hollywood of the devil and his demons uh, is ridiculous. It can seem, yeah, it's Hollywood, right? Just like, just like I don't believe the Avengers can, are, can exist, I, you know, Hollywood. I had a hard time with that. So, I do think we need to meet somewhere in the middle, not attrib attributing everything to, to the devil, but also not denying his existence, his power, his force behind much bad in the present age that we live in. 
Now, for this, I'm, I'm going to reference a book by a newer book by John Mark Comer. He's a well, he just finished being a pastor in Portland, but now he's a, just an author and teacher. But um, he's got a new book out called Live No Lies. And um, in this, he, he's I, I recommend it in regards to this if this is something you're interested in in regards to spiritual warfare. Um, yeah, well, well, we'll keep going. But in it, he points out that Jesus doesn't actually ever name the devil. Our English translations may call him Satan or things of that sort. It's not really his name. It's the Satan, the devil. Uh, we don't actually name him, and hence where, likely where J.K. Rowling made it, he who must not be named the Satan figure, as opposed to Harry Potter, the Christ-like archetype in that series. There is this he who must not be named. Scholars think it is a subtle dig of Jesus at the Satan. I'm not, you're not worthy of being named. If you look at John 8.44, Jesus speaks a lot in one verse about Satan. Excuse me, the Satan. He says, you are from your father, the devil, and you choose to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, John Mark points out that there's three implications from this passage and really the library of scripture uh, regarding Satan. That the devil is real, immaterial, but intelligent. Secondly, uh, its end goal is to spread ruin in souls and society. So both are in, within individuals and within society at large. And lastly, the primary means is lies. Getting us to believe lies. Hence why Jesus here refers to him as the father of lies, the author of lies, and so forth. So he's been crafting a working theory on the devil's strategy. And this is it. Deceitful ideals, ideas that play to disordered desires within our heart that are then normalized in a sinful society. Let's break that apart. So deceitful ideas. We start doubting who we are in Christ or where our hope is or a clear perspective. All the different things that we've talked about so far in Peter. Just twist it. Think of, what, think of Genesis in the beginning. Uh, whether you, you know, I won't speak on whether I think you need to, but whether you think that's a literal or an allegorical situation, the point of that story, that, inter, that interaction between the, the Satan figure and Adam and Eve is pointing out, what does he do? He has that, he questions whether or not God said something. Puts in some doubt. Starts twisting, distorting truth. And what does that do for humanity? It, it makes you start questioning, right? So, devil strategy. These deceitful ideas, these misleading ideas. Not necessarily even a full lie, sometimes a half lie. Did God really say that? Notice he didn't say, God didn't say that. He said, did God really say that? Just questioning. Man, how many of us, when we're in a community of friends or, or family where people just start questioning things that we thought were good, all of a sudden you're like, oh, maybe that isn't good. 
Hence why when a lot of people go to college, right, all of a sudden they're like questioning everything. Um, sorry, no offense to my, co my college kids here. Not saying that about you. Um, but that is the general phase of life where as we get a little distance from mom and dad or, uh, that we start being like, wait, what? Maybe, because we're around a bunch of people that are just asking questions. Deceitful ideas. They play to disorder desires. We've got that foot in the kingdom, but we still have a foot in the world. We still have a sinful nature that we are putting off. We talked about last week. We still have disorder desires. If you think of um, the best illustration I have for this is if we recall back in the day, TVs used to have not just the HDMI to like a uh, cable box or like an Xbox or something. You used to have the red, yellow, and white cables. Maybe some of us still have these in the back. Morgan's laughing. Um, um, those cables, if you were to plug in your cable box, um, I, I could never see them in the back of our like entertainment center, so I would just try and put the three in, and then I'd turn on the TV and see if the picture came on. Uh, and then I'd have to like move them around uh, because it was so far behind I couldn't reach. So I'd have to plug three in and see if it came on. And sometimes the audio would work, but then that means I got one right, but then I still had to put the others. The thing is, the desires, the, the intent is working, um, but the output, what it's supposed to connect into was wrong. Hence why there's a distorted picture on the screen. Often when I would plug the yellow into the white and the white into the yellow, it's fuzzy. Sometimes the audio would come through a little bit, but the picture's not clear. And similarly, those are disordered, disordered desires that we now have that are being in Christ. He's helping us reorient. No, this, this desire you have that I gave you, this good desire, you, you've got it plugged into the wrong thing in life. You're seeking to fulfill this desire in something that I don't want you to fulfill it in. And so let me help you unplug it. That hurts taking off, getting rid of, breaking down, taking you out of something, ending a relationship or a job or whatever, and let me put you over here. It's different. But he's helping reorient, helping you re-plug in your desires into the correct ordered um, facets that he has created you for. And then lastly, that normalized in a sinful society. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Society because it's made of sinners, is sinful. And it is easy to just plug and play, to drop into society. Man, if we are not in this together, if we are not in church community, we, we will wander off and do what the world does. That's just how it works. You can't be you and Jesus. You can't be a follower of Jesus and not a lover and a, and a contributor and a part of his local church. That's not a Christian. A Christian is actively a part of the local church because Jesus is actively a part and for and committed to his local church. And thus, we too are to follow in that. And if we don't, that is where we are susceptible because we have each other. That's where Hebrews says, you know, we gather together regularly so that we won't lose faith, that we won't be led astray. Anyways, as we wrap up this last part, I want to just summarize a little bit. Um, I don't have this quote on, this, on the slide, just so you know, Josh. John Mark said this, The devil's goal is first to isolate us, then implant in our minds deceitful ideas that play to our disordered desires. 
which we feel comfortable with because they are normalized by the status quo of our society. Specifically, he lies about who God is. Think when the devil tempted Jesus in the desert, questioning who God is, questioning his worth. Even when he questioned Adam and Eve, he's questioning whether or not God is honest, right? He's questioning whether or not God is good. Did God really say that? He lies about who we are, our identity, who we are now in Jesus, where our value is found, right? Where, where our worth is found, where our hope is found, and what the good life is. Man, do we just get to live it up with everyone else, quote-unquote, and uh, do everything they do and spend our money the way they do and, and uh, indulge the way they do and, and all this type of stuff and seek... Uh, Enjoyment and fulfillment in those avenues? No, those are disordered ideas. You've got them plugged into the wrong thing. I've made you for a better way. I've made you for a better life. Is what God tells us. It says, ultimately, with an aim to undermine our trust in God's love and wisdom. His intent, then, is to get us to seize autonomy from God. And get this, does this not sound like today? and redefine good and evil for ourselves, thereby leading to the ruin of our souls and society. And it sounds like today, but it also sounds like the beginning, and everything in between. Get us to redefine good and evil for ourselves. Asking, did God really say? Where does it say that in Scripture? Why can't I do this? Scripture doesn't say I shouldn't. I love when people, and I do it too, when we say, you know, the Bible never says anything about blank. It's like, well, yeah, that wasn't invented yet. Of course it didn't. Um, you know, we can't ask Scripture, a 2,000-year-old book at recent, to speak of things that were invented in the last couple hundred years. It's just not a thing. Uh, that, that's, that's an unfair expectation of the writings. No, we take the truths of Scripture, the principles of Scripture, the reality of Scripture, and we have to contextualize. We have to do that work every generation, working that through as the world unfolds. The last thing, and I do have this slide that John Mark says in regards to the devil here, is that the devil is an immaterial but real intelligence at work in the world with more power or influence than any other creature in the universe after God. He is the evil behind so much of the evil in our souls and our society. For Jesus, the secular theories that attempt to explain evil as simply a lack of education, inadequate wealth redistribution, Marxist power analysis, or even the toxicity of religion gone bad, all fall short of explaining reality. The only way to make sense of evil in all its malevolence from large global systems of evil, such as systemic racism or economic colonialism, to much smaller human-scale evils, such as our inability to stop our self-destructive drinking or hold back biting comments towards our friends, is to see an animating force behind it, adding fuel to the proverbial fire, dividing humanity against itself in a kind of societal suicide. Lies. Lies are the chief way that the devil is prowling, that he's roaring. And that's why Peter says, discipline yourself. 
How, how, is he, um, how have we seen victory, quote-unquote, temporary strides, gains for the devil's stronghold? Well, there's a new moral code. Uh, if you, if you, uh, there's a book called Good Faith by Dave Kinnaman. He's a, he's a Barna Group researcher. It's a Christian research nonprofit group. And um, he points out there was a big study done a few years back regarding the new moral code. We've got six of them up here. To find yourself, look within. And here's the thing. 91% of people affirm this. 76% of Christians affirm this in America. These are American people. Number two, people should not scrutinize someone else's life choices. 89% of people, 76% of Christians. To be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire most. That's 86% of the population, 72% Christians believe that. Enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. It's 84 to 66% of Christians. People can believe whatever they want so long as those beliefs don't affect society. That's 79 to 61. And whatever that caveat means, so long as they don't affect society. That's a nice little asterisk there. And the last one, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is fine. This was a few years ago, arguably, and even where we're coming from in Seattle, the two is no longer a thing. Um, it could be one and something else, or many adults. 69% versus 40% of Christians. Now, some of these, they're, these are nuanced. They're, they're all, they all have their own things, but these are just generic values, the new... Uh, morality that is shaping what is called the morality of self-fulfillment is what they are defining this now as a sociologist. That our new, arguably they say, the, this is the new religion, the, right, the fastest growing religion in America is the, is the religion of self-fulfillment, self-worship. We see this, this is what Instagram and TikTok are. It is self-worship. It is. There's just, there's just no way around it. You're building your platform, you're building your name. It is self-worship. One of the biggest things I think we'll look back on is when we put cameras in our phones. The ability to take hundreds of photos every minute of ourselves, what that did to our brain and our hearts, it's gotta be ravaging us. It's no wonder the depression, suicide, anxiety rates are up all across all generations, but in particular, the younger couple in Gen Z and myself as a millennial. The religion of self-worship. See, we weren't meant to look inward, nor were we meant to look in the mirror. No, we were meant to be a mirror of God. Not to see ourselves in the mirror, but for people to see God in us. And we weren't meant to look at ourselves, we were meant to look up. But instead, these cameras, selfie cameras, promote a life of looking back at ourselves. And, it, and, and we know this isn't good on numerous levels, and, and that the secular world is acknowledging this finally, as the Facebook files have been coming out. Um, but man, we know this is wreaking havoc on humanity as we know it. And so what do we do about it? What do we do about it? 
Peter says, discipline yourselves. Discipline yourselves. Have a clear head. Keep alert. So how do we discipline? Well, I'm going to give you some practical things. In particular, anyone on social media, but I'll, I'll address that one first, but then I'll get into some other avenues of life that how we discipline ourselves from guarding ourselves from the lies of the Satan. But yes, any avenue that is pointing you more inward, looking more at yourself, uh, those are things we want to fight against. Because the reality is, we are always being formed. Everything is forming us. Everything. You are always being formed, whether it be in the image of Jesus or by the image of something else. Everything is shaping you somehow. Everything is shaping me somehow. And we always say, you know, we, oh, that's not that much. That's not that little. Or that's not that significant. No, we are always being shaped. That's why God is defined as the potter in Scripture allegorically, and we're, we are the clay. And God is shaping us. We're called to come before him. Let him reshape us into the image of Jesus. But, man, we are, we are competing with some other voices, other lies that are distorting that. And so, yeah, I recommend, I mean, I definitely recommend getting off social media, but uh, in particular, those who are like, man, I, I think I feel this, I think I noticed this. Um, I, def I mean, Apple in particular has some great screen time features, um, but I recommend, um, if you actually want to use social media in a way that keeps your eyes not focused just on you, post photos of other people, um, not just you. Um, highlight, shout out other people. I love when other people try and use it to shout out to others. If you look at someone's profile, how great would it be for Jesus followers, for people to see a Jesus followers Instagram account or Facebook account or whatever and be like, hey, their profile is different. It's not like anger and outrage. It's like just shouting out people. How we do on Sunday mornings? That's, that'd be pretty cool. The world needs that. The world needs to hear encouraging stories of people doing great things. They're like, man, picture your mom or something like that, or your grandma, or man, I love them, or something like that. How great that would be. Your little siblings, your, your, your neighbors, anything like that. Using social media differently. Going differently than the way of the world. I advise you to think creatively. Don't just follow in line. Don't just go the way of the world, the way... They want you to use social media. No, be a rebel. Use it differently. Or don't use it at all. That's the ultimate rule. But, uh, <laughs> but no, use it differently. Use it differently. Um, young people in particular, I, I, I advise you, if you take a lot of selfies, um, put a screen time cap on your camera app or delete your camera app. That's a big one. Uh, but uh, that's a bold one. Stop looking at yourself. We weren't meant to look at ourselves, guys. How else do we discipline from these lies, these six moral things, six points of the moral code? Well, where are we getting our source of truth, of life, of identity? Are we getting it from the, the, the parties and, and communities that we identify with? Or are we getting it from the truth of Scripture? Are we finding our hope and who we are in the truths of Jesus, of our new life in Him? Or are we finding it from outrage culture, from news, or fake news? 
How are we forming our ethics of how we live or, or use our money or use our, our homes, any wealth that we have, any riches that God has given us? How are we using our bodies? How are we living into our relationships? Are we allowing other things to shape the way we view those and approach those avenues of life and relationships? Or are we living humbly? Are we asking those that God's placed in our care? Are we doing life in community? Are we going to the scriptures? Are we praying? Are we putting this before God before we make a decision? Are we asking him for his guiding? Are we asking our elders or mentors for help? That's how we discipline ourselves. We set up discipline. We set up boundaries. We set up rules. We set up guardrails. And so for those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus and seeking to stay alert, to resist the devil who is ready to prowl, prowl, we are to be steadfast in our faith. Peter says, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. It just looks different. But our suffering is different. We're enduring the same type of opposition. We're being fed the same type of lies. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. What lies are you believing? What lies are you believing about God, about yourself, about others, about life as we know it? about reality, about what life's all about, about what the good life is? What lies might you be susceptible to believing that when those do come around, you're like, ooh, that, that sounds good. I'm going to go that way. Do they contradict our living hope in Jesus? Do they come in the face of everything we've looked at in Peter, of our hope is it, is it pulling your hope away from Jesus? Is it putting your eyes in something else? In a relationship, in a job, in a, in a community, in something, in some sort of redemption? Or is it in the living hope that we have in Jesus, the true redemption we have in it? Is it, is it contradicting who you are in Jesus? Is it telling you your identity is more primarily based on this or this or this? Is it, no, you're first and foremost daughter or son of God. And there's a lot of identities that fall in line to that. But is it telling you, no, this is more important now? Is it pulling you away from your conduct in Jesus, calling you to live a different life, a life that doesn't line up with the way of Jesus, that when people see the way you live, they're like, oh, you're a Christian. I didn't know that. It's probably not a good sign. Is it having us view through different lens? That we're having a different perspective on life. That we're having a perspective that resonates more with the world. Those new moral codes, the, the self-worship, new religion, the, the morality of self-fulfillment. Or does it resonate God's moral order? That's something for us to be considering as we go forth, as we wrap up First Peter. I think he ends that intently that I just gave you four dense chapters 
calling you to remember all these new things, how the gospel of Jesus has changed everything. It's changed where you look to for hope, where you look to for identity, where you look to for a model of living, where you look to for how to look through and look at life. And that's why he wraps up with saying, be on guard, discipline yourselves. And I think be on guard in submission to your local church is where that's coming. And surround yourself with church community as you follow Jesus followers, or as you follow Jesus. And I'll just read the last words of Peter. He says, through Sylvanus, whom I consider a faithful brother, I have written this short letter to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Your sister church in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends your greetings, and so does my son, John Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I'm going to invite the worship team up. Peace to all of us who are in Christ. As we wrap up, I want to encourage you all to reflect on this morning's passage, Peter's words, and our challenge potentially of, man, we, we talked about three different places, different positions. Our position as leaders for Christ, our position as followers in Christ, and our position as just humans going through the struggle of life. Man, what lies are we potentially believing? What lies do we need to repent of? Um, what actions, what lifestyles, what choices have we made that we chose to believe those lies over the truth of God's word and the truth of God? I encourage you to prayerfully uh, repent, confess, spend, spend some time reflecting. And then uh, in this time, we also uh, we ask that if you are uh, giving, that you give in this time uh, sacrificially. We've got two baskets, a basket in the front and a basket in the back. Or you can give on the Venmo app. And then lastly, we sing. We sing together and rejoice in the goodness of God. We rejoice that we can remember our place. It's not dependent on our own works, but that Jesus already overcame Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship 
is to be experienced weekly in person within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks. Thank you.